Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This morning we're going to look at our, our mission statement one more time. We've got to move rapidly through it. The teaching is online in previous weeks should you choose to go and look at that. And what I want to say, let me go ahead and just build a case rather than doing the typical review of all seven. The first four I want you to note, um, in the, and why this is so critical here at New Hope is it's not just an accident of picking clever words or, or picking an acronym of mission and cleverly trying to fit in words or, or whatever the case. But I want you to notice that the first four of these terms for our mission, this is really how we do ministry here. Meet people where they are, number one. Number two, instill God's value in every life. Number three, secure the promise of God's word. And I've said in times past that you can meet a person that doesn't know Christ as Savior, and you can lead them to steps one and two. You can be that ambassador of grace, ambassador of redemption. And you can meet them where they are and begin to just minister to them relationally. You can begin to declare God's value that God's word declares in the life of that person. And they can entertain that and get excited about that. And they can even receive that. And they can receive those first two points without accepting Christ as Savior. Did you know that? That they can listen to you tell them about, hey, God just wants to meet you where you are. And that's good news. And he has, here's what he's, uh, the image of God stamped on your soul before the foundation of the world. That God is doing everything he can to bring out the full worth and value. By the way, and that's what I'm committed to if people ask me, what's at the core of really your vision and ministry? And that's to lead people to human wholeness as God designed humans to live whole. That that really is just nothing more concise for me. But that third one is securing the promise of God's word. I don't believe in my mind you can get past number three and not accept the Lord as you, uh, accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can entertain those first two steps in the message, but once you open yourself to are the declarations in his word and the claims that he makes about me as a human being, if they are true, I have to deal with it. I either have to say there's nothing to it or there's something to it. And at that point, people really begin to be, I think, uh, irrefutably born again. Then the next one is to stimulate growth and change. What happens as we encounter God's word is 2 Corinthians 3 says the Holy Spirit writes that word on our hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. And as it's written on our heart, something begins to happen. If you read through to the end of 2 Corinthians 3, it says where the Spirit, we sang it this morning, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And he says for the Holy Spirit is working in transformation from uh, glory to glory so that we begin to reflect more of the image of God. And in this statement, he says, as is from the Lord, comma, the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is here acting on on the words of our advocate of redemption before the throne of God, and we have an advocate of transformation on this planet. That's the Holy Spirit. Our advocate of redemption is none other than the Son of God. And he advocates according to that word, 1 John chapter 2. He pleads by the basis of his representative blood. He says, Father, based on the fact that I paid the price, now humanity, or Tom by name, 
or Karen or Brenda or Kendra or John or Denise, that, that, that they can now receive this. What happens then? Well, Jesus said once he went before the Father, the Holy Spirit would come here, and he uses the same word to describe the Holy Spirit here, and that's an advocate, pleading, filing pleadings. Here's the good news. We have an advocate of redemption pleading with the Father on behalf of me. We have an advocate of transformation pleading with me on behalf of the Father. Somebody needs to hear that. Because the advocate of transformation, the Holy Spirit, says, I want to, for the image, the radiating presence of God to be in your life, transforming you from image to image to image, glory to glory. Isn't that wonderful? If we have a lot of fun substituting that word opinion, and last year I gave you the reason why we stick it in there that's based on that word from the original language. But I love playing with that and sticking opinion in any place glory shows up. Why? Because it says he is transforming us from opinion to opinion to opinion. Hallelujah. Look at me. In terms of grace, isn't it good to know you'll never exhaust God's opinion of you? Somebody say amen right there. You'll never exhaust God's opinion of you. And his opinion is I'm transforming you from image to image and image, ever pushing back those possibilities. Now, as we come to number five on this, and here's where we left off, and I'm doing all three today, fear not, okay? Don't, fear not. <clears throat> Those of you who laughed are the cruel people who are always suspicious of the time. But integrate giftedness, we're gonna hit that. Now that, if, if the first four, okay, uh, remove number five, if you would, Amanda, please, just for a moment. The first four represent individual and personal growth sequence for each of us. In other words, God met me where I was. Some way he began to instill value. He baited me into considering what he had to say about me. That's his word. And then as a result of that, I began to change. My first change point was nothing less than salvation. I was born again. Uh, a dying creation became a born again, brand new creation. And the limitless possibilities Watch, that happened at creation, now are happening in recreation. The way that God spoke at creation in Genesis and things happened, he now speaks concerning me at recreation or new creation according to Ephesians chapter one. And that's a powerful notion that he does that. So those first four represent a personal or more of an individual process of growth. Number five, the last two, go ahead and you can put the remaining three up if you would, Amanda. The last two are overcoming in prayer and praise and networking in relationships. Now, these two can certainly be individually appropriated, but for me, they represent more of the corporate or community expression of faith and how that works. But there's a transition point that we never get involved in overcoming through prayer and praise with others or networking in relationships if we don't address the fact that God has deposited in each of us a unique gift. And we're gonna look at that very quickly and understand why it's critical. Now there's a sequence again. Last week as I talked about growth and change, we looked at Ephesians chapter four. I, I believe it is just the absolute ultimate statement on how God matures individuals and the body of Christ. Because you can't separate, according to that passage, he says, I'm wanting to grow each one a measure of grace so that you are jointly fit, 
elbows, arms, pieces of the body, so that the body can grow up to be who it is. So here's the good news and maybe the bad. You will never grow up to be who you are in Christ if you don't find your place in the body of Christ. Neither will the body of Christ be functionally and forcefully mature in this world if it's not comprised of individuals who are saying, I want to take my place. And you can say, well, I wonder how he, mean, how he assumes to accomplish that. And I'm glad you asked because Ephesians answers that. He says, I've equipped leadership to prepare you to equip you for works of service. That means servanthood. The word service there is diakonos, from which we get deacon or minister. It is our ministry to find our place. You know, <clears throat> we've lived... And we live in a culture that celebrates independent individualism. And I get that that is part of our national narrative. And we celebrate that, you know, I have rights, we do. And we're not inclined then, in other words, by culture, we are predisposed to pursue my own individual realization and not so much a corporate one. It's just, you know, the corporate, if you will, the nation, the constitution provides opportunity where I can pursue the American dream. But we don't often think in terms of we. And yet the apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians and, and many places would clearly say when he was writing Timothy, he says, you have a gift. I, pray, I prayed for that gift in you. You have it. And if that gift I imparted by laying hands on you, and he says that in 2 Timothy 1 all the way to verse 6, but when he hits verse 7, something changes. He moves from first-person pronoun to the full expression of the possibilities of that encounter. What do I mean? He moves from I, me, uh, I, me, you, my, or mine, and he moves to this, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, a Holy Spirit of fear but he's given us a Holy Spirit of power and of love and a sound mind, hallelujah. And then he goes on and saying, us, 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 for this purpose, we, we, us, us. Can I tell you this? I wanna say it forcefully and it's not popular in American culture because we love our independent individuality. But that you will never, and here, here, here's a statement. Matter of fact, find Malcolm Gladwell's secular book it's Outliers, I think is the name of it. And, it's, and he refutes the myth that there are self-made people. Not Bill Gates, not Albert Einstein, not any of the, of, of the, um, of the great financial figures of history. They all had someone else, they had an opportunity and a place, but someone helped them. You wanna be all that you can be? Great, start from a selfish standpoint. Find someone to connect to and serve alongside with. Of. You will not grow to the place of maturity until you find a place of serving in the body of Christ. So I wanna ask you again, start somewhere. You say, well, you mean here in the church? Sure, you can start here, but it's not limited to that. Right here is fine. We got lots of places to serve the body, serve the family on the, on the times we gather. Lots of things that happen right here from the frontline people in the parking lot to the people in the lobby, to those who teach the children, to those who play and lead and worship, to those who serve one another here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our church was just an army of 100% servants? What would happen then? The body, Jesus said, the word says that we would come to a place of functional maturity that would change the world. Again, so I'm pushing back against that, realizing it may not be popular. So we come to this point of stimulating growth and change, how we grow. I just said, you can listen to last week's teaching. 
But we integrate giftedness. All of us have spiritual gifts. And I'd like to pick that up, and it's at this point, you'll probably need to grab your, <clears throat> your, your uh, Bibles or uh, whatever you have them on and, and be ready for that. I already shared what was my introduction from John 14 about a place in us, a place in God for us, and a place in God for you. And really, this point of the mission statement asserts that. Now, when we think in, I grew up in classical Pentecostalism. When I heard gifts of the Spirit from a child forward, the gifts of the Spirit, the only one I knew about was speaking in tongues. And the only one I knew about was expressed often and a lot of weirdness surrounding it a lot of the time. And the teaching that I heard was was a message in tongues. You know, the the primary value of 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 an utterance in tongues is a message in tongues. And I don't know why I'm about to insert this and cause problems for myself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I grew up, and so when I entered the ministry, I started looking for that phrase or that concept in Scripture. See, because a message in tongues says that I'm hearing a message from God to me. A message, you everybody get that? A message from God to me. Yet the only times in Scripture that tongues is is really elaborated on is the historical reference of Acts 2. Now, those of you who teach, listen closely. And then sort of the didactic reference of, or the, the teaching reference, Paul becomes the New Testament theologian, if you will, breaking down the functional ministry of Christ in the kingdom. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes this. Now, remember in Acts chapter 2, it said they each began to speak in tongues. People came by of 15 different, 15 to 17 different sub-dialects. And it said they heard them each speaking in their own language, saying this, extolling God. Everybody look this way. What did the people hear them doing? Praising God. Which way is that communication? It's from here to there. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would write, he says, I I pray in the Spirit and pray in tongues more than all of you. He says this, he says, I pray in the Spirit. He said, I pray in the Spirit, I pray with my mind. I bless in the Spirit, I bless with my mind. I sing in the Spirit, I sing with my mind. He's saying both. Now, look at those three things. Bless, praise, and sing. And there's a fourth one I'm not remembering, I think. That, that, what is it? Give thanks. Correct. Give thanks in the spirit and with my mind. Watch this. Which way is that motion? If I'm singing, which way is that going? That way. If I'm, if I'm blessing, which way is that going? That way. If I'm giving thanks, which way is that going? That way. Well, our desire here in recapturing that wonderful gift of tongues that I do believe is the only spiritual gift that is open to every person. There's a reason why. Primarily, its benefit is for intercessory language, and I don't think people do it nearly enough. And can I tell you this? When I heard a message in tongues, I can't find where God uses that particular gift, listen, to send a message to me, but it's meant to send an encrypted message from me to him. Now, there is something happening on the throne when that happens. Now, I realize I've opened up a can of worms that many of you who grew up like me in classical Pentecostalism, you're going, I, I, I just don't know about that. It's okay. I, there's teaching online. If you have a question, email me at tom at New Hope Online. Tom at New Hope Online. I'll send you the links to it. I'll send you the outlines. But here's what I think. I think that what I grew up in had reduced speaking in tongues to sort of a a spiritual superiority flashcard. I can't tell you how many times I heard, well, how was the service today? Growing up, oh, it was awesome. There were three messages in tongues, and the preacher didn't even preach. Three messages in tongues. That was the standard for whether we were really not Pentecostal. 
I, don't, I am not interested in carrying a flashcard of my Pentecostalism to assert it above a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, or whomever. That is arrogance, and the Corinthians suffered from that arrogance. I, I, I want to pull out, if you will, that wonderful gift so that God can use me to send an encrypted message before the throne. And I love that suggested notion from even Romans 8, where it says the Holy Spirit groans to us and groanings too deep for words. And I realize, that's it, for those of you who teach, that is a different term in the original language than glossolalia, it's stenognos, but I believe the poetic overtone carries this wonderful connotation that God still uses us through that vehicle of intercession. So I, 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 inst- I stuck five minutes in there that I didn't have in my outline, but uh, I want us all to get that this morning. So this morning, <clears throat> we're gonna look at integrated giftedness. Now let me jump right into this and then how that leads to overcoming in prayer and praise and networking in relationships. Those last two are clearly community-wide. We gather uh, now, you can, we can worship and praise on our, our own. You hear me teach on that a lot and how I do daily. Just, and that's, I'm not waving a flag. I'm just saying it's a practice I did this morning. Matter of fact, I sat just in my own private time of worship after finishing. Uh, yeah, just finishing to come here. And, um, and I sang this little song of praise. When I think about the Lord. I just sing to him how he saved me and how you raised me, how you filled me with the Holy Ghost, how you healed me to the uttermost. I'm just singing a song of praise that said, Father, I'm so glad when you pass by this house, you don't look for the worthiness of the occupant but you look for the presence of the blood. And the second part says, when I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and he turned me around. Anybody here have that testimony? So we praise and worship all by ourselves. I do. But the opportunity for that corporate expression of overcoming in prayer and praise, I'm gonna talk to you about that this morning. But I wanna look at integrating giftedness. And there's three primary passages that deal with giftedness in the New Testament. And that's um, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. Now, typically, when I'm teaching on this, I'll go into the distinctions between the associated, what should I say, the associated personages of the Trinity. Romans 12 speaks of gifts of the Father. Ephesians 4 speaks of gifts of the Son. And 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of gifts of the Spirit. I believe all of the gifts ultimately come from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what is unique about this concept of the terms gifts that you're gonna see, first of all, is that they appear to be individually deposited in, um, in Romans chapter 12, verse six, it refers to these gifts as gifts of grace. Watch this, it says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Now the language used here that is really compelling is if you look at verse three prior to getting to that, it uses the concept again in talking about our gifts. Did you notice that in verse six, it said that we have gifts according to the grace. Well, what is he talking about? Grace, verse three, for through the grace given to me, 
I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but here it comes, but to think uh, so as to a sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So he associates there our faith with a, um, our measure of faith with that same unique deposit of grace. In Ephesians 4 verse 7, it says he has deposited a measure of grace in each of us. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that he has deposited that same spirit, a manifestation. So in each and every one of us is this unique reality uh, and why we need to find out what is my gift? Do I have a gift of mercy? Do I have a gift of serving? Do I have a gift of administration? Do I have a gift of evangelism? Do I know what the gift is that God's deposited in me and am I actively looking for an opportunity to give expression to that. Why is that important? The phrase spiritual gifts comes to us through a unique Greek word, and there's no way that I can avoid, I know everybody makes jokes about Pastor Tom and the original languages, but there's just things you get, when you look at the original languages, you go from a 16 color box of crayons to 128. You get to color in so many other little subtleties that, that I just love that. And why color with 16 when you can get 128? Well, that's what this does is color it in. The word from which we get spiritual gifts, interestingly, um, as a matter of fact, the only place that it actually has the word for spirit is at the opening of 1 Corinthians, it's either 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, where it says, I wouldn't have you ignorant concerning gifts. Well, it's actually spirituals, spirituals. And that doesn't really come across with. But every other place we see spiritual gifts is from this word, charisma. And the Greek transliteration is identical to what we see in English, charisma, C-H-R-I-S-M-A. Now, if we can put that up, you see how that is? Um, I warned you, Amanda, of the autocorrect, didn't I? You see that? Charisma, you see that? Chairs, chairs is Siri not being sanctified on a Mac computer. <laughs> Chairs is Siri refusing to recognize the grace that's just been typed into her environment. Because Chairs should be C-H-R, excuse me, C-H-A-R-I-S, and that is charis for grace, okay? So charisma means, it literally means, well, well I'll tell you what it means. You see the, the, the emphasis on Charisma, that says charisma, okay, C-H-R-I-S, and I'm blaming Amanda, but I don't know the text message I, may, I sent you. It may have autocorrected in there, and you're actually typing what I sent, but it's easier for me to blame you than take responsibility for it. <clears throat> so, amen. But this, this sequence, there we go. <laughs> hey, can we just give her an applause for being instant in the season now, okay? That word charis means grace. The MA letter is a Greek modifier, and it literally means a concrete expression of whatever noun it is attached to. In this case, it's attached to grace. And so it means a concrete expression of grace. Please listen to me. Why is it so important that we find our gift and act in it? Because we become a concrete expression of grace as we walk in that gift in someone's life, in this church, beyond the walls. Why is that important? You've seen this little PowerPoint. Matter of fact, Pastor Buck Marshall is the one who created it for me probably 15 years ago. Uh, he and Rhea here this morning. By the way, it's great to have them 
in worship, isn't it? And uh, they live closer, and so they're going to be driving over. I was going to say most every week. That's what they said. I'm going to say every week. <clears throat> Amen. Come on. Amen. Amen. That's what I'm talking about, okay? But uh, Amanda, go ahead and run that if you would. It's just a little video. Watch this. That's me. The circle around me is my life, the boundaries of my life. Scripture, Romans 5, says that sin is constantly trying to squeeze in on my life. But as it presses in, every time sin activates, grace responds in the face and says where sin abounds, the grace of God much more abounds. And it doesn't just push it back to reset the boundary. Grace always huperperisuo. It pushes beyond. So sin becomes a self-defeating proposition. Why is that important? Grace is that force that pushes back against sin. And every time the force of sin, see, I don't mean stuff we do bad. It could be that. But because Paul says, uh, he would write right after this in Romans 5, he says, now, if you're thinking I'm saying because the presence of sin releases a great outpouring of grace, great, let's sin all the more so I can get more grace. And he says, God forbid you're missing my point. I think he was writing that to American people. 2000, oh, great, if sin releases the grace of God, then <laughs> saddle up, baby. I'm heading out on a sin spree on Friday night. And I'm expecting grace by Sunday morning. Bless God. That's not what it's talking about, okay? But it is saying that the sin as a, a dynamic force at work that entered at the Garden of Eden, seeking to crush and squeeze the very life, not out of just believers, but out of every human being, we're uniquely uh, empowered through grace to give that pushback. Why is that important in our study today? Because we individually are concrete expressions of grace. In the same way that grace has a dynamic or explosive force, here it comes. If you're not operating, seeking to understand what your unique deposit of grace is, what concrete expression of grace is, God says, it's one of the reasons I believe that Jesus said in John 14 that greater works than these you do. I think that he was saying, I'm a single vessel of grace and the purpose and mission of God and the mercy of God. He said, but there's coming a day when this spirit of God's going to live in each of you. And it's going to be greater because there's going to be, going to be multiplied 10 million times 10 million. Here's the deal. God intends for you to be a grace bomb. God intends for you to be a grace bomb. And he intends for you to blow up right in the middle of somebody's life where sin is squeezing in, where sin is pushing back. Let me give you an example. You've met people um, with the gift of helps. That's one of them listed. Helps. Just come alongside to help. Have you met a person with, that, that, with a gift of helps when someone's in the side of need? Have you ever thought of stopping your gift of helps? I, I believe I have that. I won't drive past a broken down person on the side of the road. I can't walk past a person who says, man, I really need some help or, or something. Help me out with this. I, I just can't bail out on it for whatever reason. But I've determined that instead of that being sort of an obsessive compulsion, uh, compulsive expression of me trying to just do the God stuff, what if God says, no, Tom, I put that gift in you. You're a grace bomb. Because wherever you encounter people's lives in the simplest of way, whether they, they, they can't pay the bill or something's broken at their house or broken down on the side of the road, or they've just finished going through a hurricane and a team of you show up after, mm, goodness, after Katrina, I remember driving up to a World War II veteran's house. I don't know if there's any guys. Jeff may probably remember it. But his porch, his outside porch, a carport where he drove in his car, had about 18 inches of mud on it. 
And this precious World War II veteran couldn't breathe well. He steps out, and when our team happened to drive by, go into another place, he was with a broom trying to sweep a foot of mud off of that. Well, our guys jumped right off and got out with shovels and a piece of equipment and with literally just minutes had it cleaned off, cleared off. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. What big deal does it make clearing mud off a guy's porch? Ask the World War II vet who stood there with tears running down his face. Watch when Grace just showed up and helps and pushed back a space where he thought, I just might live to see tomorrow. Beloved, we need goodness to walk in our gift and I'm gonna push hard. I'm believing for just revival and renewal in and through new hope. I'm not saying it because it's a popular preacher phrase or statement to incite a little emotions. I'm praying God visit us where every member, every person that comes in says, I'm a grace bomb. And it's certainly, watch, as theologically, theologically, read all of Romans 5. Grace creates a space, grace created a space where you could embrace redemption. That's what grace does. Mercy is the force that with, keeps a place open for grace. Grace is the force that keeps a place open where I can step into that circle where grace is pushed back and I can say, God, what did you have in mind for me? That's where I can embrace redemption. Are you aware that that's what we are to each other? When we step up, we step alongside, and we bring our simple gift to pray. It may be intercession where you step up and say, let me pray with you right now. It may not change your circumstances tomorrow, but I can tell you this. It's about to change your understanding that the things that are trying to squeeze the life out of you don't have the power to because the final opinion on the power of sin was through the cross, and the cross was a place where we overcome Praise God, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. And when you finish praying, the circumstances may not have altered, but suddenly they're standing in a clear spot where they can look around and say, wow, I thought the edges and the boundaries were a whole lot closer. I got a little room to operate here. That's why we want to find our place of giftedness and take that in the body of Christ. Why is that critical? Because the moment we do that, the church begins to become the church. And it leads us to this. At the core of the concept of overcoming in praise for me is what that does. One of the first expressions of praise that we mimic here in the sanctuary is uplifted hand. And it was Abraham in the wilderness in Genesis 14. First place it shows up in the Bible. And it said, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth. That's a statement of covenant, oath and covenant where he reached his hand forward. 400 years later, God says, uh, when they're going in to possess the promise that God would speak to Abraham 400 years earlier, Abraham's dead, Moses is alive, you have another covenant preparing in motion, preparing to be activated. And Moses says, these people here have been slaves for 400 years, they don't get it, they don't understand, what can I do? And God says, tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm bringing them into the land which I promised to give them. And the scripture says, on the day I lifted my hand. That's what the language is. You see, that oath and covenant has to do with, come here, Jeremy, please. I get to be God. You get to be Abraham on earth. Go right down there. He's on earth. I'm in heaven. Abraham stood there that day and said, I've lifted my hand. That was a statement of covenant. But he wasn't left there alone because when God begins to speak in chapter 15, we can intimate that what God said happened in Exodus 6 has happened. Well, what do you mean by that? Hang with me. Come on, pay attention. 
In Exodus 6, he says, on the day I lifted my hand. Well, I believe when Abram lifted his hand, the Father in heaven looked around heaven and said, hold on, we got business to take care of. And the God that was in heaven reached forward to one that was on earth and you couldn't see it, but he essentially said this, whatever you make binding on earth, I'll make binding in the heavenlies. Watch this. And then 400 years later, God says, I'm bringing them into the land that I promised on the day I lifted my hand. See, there's two sides to this equation that an act of prayer and praise attaches something in the heavenlies, that it contracts with heaven. Thank you, son. Now, if you would look with me at Matthew chapter 16, I'm excerpting two verses, verses 18 and 19. Watch this language and language that comes to the church. It's Jesus speaking in response to Peter, actually to all of them, but he is speaking to Peter at this moment because he's asked them, who do you say that I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And there's an implicit message here, by the way, that jumps on the first of verse 18. I didn't, this isn't in my notes either, but somebody needs it. So let me give it to you. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, and, and he's speaking to what Peter had just said, that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That was the rock. Those words were the rock. Peter, uh, and, and was not so much that, but representative of that. But here's the point. After Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he says, God, I know who you are. And God says, great. I didn't need that information. But here's why you needed to say it. Because there's no way that you can know who you are, Peter, until you acknowledge who I am. Beloved, right here is the core of the gospel message. It's God implicitly speaking back saying, and Peter, I say to you, let me tell you who you are. But for every human being, everyone online listening under the sound of my voice, anybody in this room that doesn't know Christ as Savior, you will never come to know who you are until you acknowledge who he is and the claims on your life. That goes back to what I said earlier, the fullness of human wholeness as defined by God. Well, let's keep going. He says, uh, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And here it comes. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Would you go back to the previous verse, Amanda, please? He said, um, I say to you that uh, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my, what's that word there? Church. Jesus uses the word church himself uh, nine times. Once here in Matthew 16, once in Matthew 18, and then seven times in the book of Revelation. So it's a, a very unique appropriation. The word church here is a unique po a point and a, a, a word. It's the word ecclesia. But there's another half of this. What, now I wanna, I'm going to pause right there. The word ecclesia comes from the word ekkaleo. Don't put those up just yet, Amanda. But here's what that word means. It means the called out who call forth. The word kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, came into use in the Greek language about 600 years earlier. And it was used largely by Greco city-states who would define a crier. And that crier was an official political appointment where he would go out, he, he would go out and cry, come together, come together, or something of that order. And he would summon, if you, excuse me, the word kaleo was the called out. Forget me, back up and rewind. The word kaleo was the unique group of citizenry that had the power to vote. And they made three decisions primarily. Military, issues of military strategy, 
issues of prevailing government. In other words, would they vote in Republican, Democrat, Libertarian? I made that up, but it is true. They would got to vote in a prevailing government ideology. And the third thing was civil referendum. So what's, what did you have? Which prevailing government would rule, how we can win militarily, and the decisions over civil referendum on the quality of life, aqueducts, sewers, things of that nature. Why is that important? Because the, the called out would come together and they would make a vote. Now, I accidentally went into the crier. Now I got to finish that. But as you go to Matthew 16, you find these same three things referenced as you begin at about verse 16 and go all the way through 19. He says, you're the called out that have the power to call forth. You have the power to vote heaven in and hell out. You have the power, the kingdom of heaven can reign above the strategies of hell is an invitation to which prevailing government and that's why I say to believers, I'm not copping out on social activism. I get involved. I get involved. But the primary point of activism that I can have to change the face of the planet will not be the deciding vote I make in the first week of November. It'll be the vote I cast every day in prayer and pray, prayer and praise by inviting the kingdom of God. You don't have to clap about that, but it's true. And the more we give in to that, see, we're trying to fix problems here by using mechanisms here. And God says, you can fix problems there if you'll use the tools I gave you. But we don't. We're going to fight and fuss on Facebook about which prevailing political ideology is superior and which one most greatly reflects the will of God, when in fact, in a final day, there's no way to estimate that since no place in the Bible did it deal with the provision of voting in anything called a democracy. It was totalitarian, autocratic. It was, you know, not even monarchical. It was just absolute rulership by emperors and conquering kings and whatnot. So pray about it, do, but understand that your greatest influence will not be found in the voting booth, but in the prayer closet. You don't have to shout me down right there. <clears throat> if I'd have said that at another really Pentecostal church, see, you guys aren't saved. The best decision is not going to be made in the voting booth, but in the prayer closet. Somebody would still say, preach, preach, preach. So I just do it for myself. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> now, enough said about that. But watch what happens here, that it was, says the church is, by the way, did you know the, the crier, the crier, the one that went around summoning people together? Do you know as you come to the New Testament, do you, know, you want to know the word? It's karuks and karugma. And you say, why do I need to know that? Because it's the word defined preacher. 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 I made up my mind when I discovered that about 10 years ago, that my primary responsibility wasn't come, come to come give you here a $3 worth of God to go in a bag or just make you feel better or warm and fuzzy. God's word has the capacity to do that and the Holy Spirit can handle it. But what if I, as the crooks, the crier, what if I walked out every Sunday morning and said, okay, I'm here. You guys are the collect, oh, the ones who have the power to vote heaven in and hell out. The ones that have the power to decide military conquest and spiritual warfare. The ones that have more influence on civil, eternal civil referendum and quality of life than any institution or people on the planet, I've called you to come together. Not to sit in a pew and hear your favorite song or smile and say, that makes me happy. <laughs> you say, well, Pastor, if you're going to start doing that every week, I probably won't bring my friends since they'll think you're a lunatic. But what if we understand that we come together as an act 
of spiritual governmental agency. What, to do what? To, to invite, it says, whatever you make binding on earth shall have been made binding in the heavenlies. Well, that's overcoming in prayer and praise as a corporate proposition. Remember I told you the first four were individual. Meet God, God meets me where I am and stills his value that he secures the promises of God's word and based upon God's word and the Holy Spirit, I begin to grow and change and I begin to grow and change to the place that I wanna find my place of gift and my point of giftedness so that I can be an active part of the body of Christ and the extension of the gospel and the possibilities of redemption. And then the last two are the result of that, I'm gonna stand together with my family overcoming praise and doing what? That I'm inviting that which is from beyond into this world by my acts of prayer and praise. And if we understood that we weren't just coming here to celebrate some emotional, uh, evocative reality, we've come here to celebrate the possibilities of spiritual exchange. And I celebrate people that walk in here when they've had the worst week you can possibly imagine. And they don't feel like lifting up holy hands and making anything binding, but yet they come to the house of the Lord and say, Father, if you might use this simple act of praise in terms of appropriating your presence, releasing grace, I'm here this morning by my praise and worship to become a grace bomb. So blow hell back, create a possibility for heaven, push back sin and create a place for redemption because that's what grace does and whatever little bit you might do through me this morning I release it through my song and my declaration even though I don't feel like it Lord release grace to somebody five feet around me may it just sort of overflow and pour out on the person standing close to me may that person somehow feel like I, I, I just sort of feel like I can reach God from here and then suddenly become aware of what it says in Ephesians chapter 5 when it says be filled with the spirit and sing songs spiritually songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs doing what? Encouraging one another in the Lord, making melody in your heart before God. Can I tell you that this transaction will always have this kind of release? Always. Which leads us to the last point today, and that's networking and relationships. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, let us hold fast our confession of hope for he who promised is without wavering for he who promises faithful. He, watch where he keeps going. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We did an entire study on this just a few months ago. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I love that word assembling together. It's the word from which we get synagogue. And it's sunagos. Did you know sunagos doesn't appear in the Old Testament? In the, there's no, there's no uh, in the uh, Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, the synagogue didn't happen. There was no synagoguing. There was only the temple. And the temple was the only place that the law could be taught. Watch this. But when the pandemic of destruction and deportation happened, in the deportation years, God, there was a provision and it came to be synagogue, which was accepted by the time the New Testament opens up 400 years after Malachi. It came into being in that window. And what was it? The rabbis made a provision for, okay, we don't have a temple, we don't have a tabernacle, you can't teach the law in the tabernacle of the temple, so we are licensing individual homes to come a place where the word and promise of God can be taught. Isn't that an amazing thing? But what is that a provision for? Because the people have been deported and held captive. Watch the language right here in this book, it's entitled Hebrews, a letter written to Hebrew people. 
He said, you're a people who understands the sense of being forsaken as you were deported and carried away because of your own sin and failure. But even at that, he says, don't forsake. And I love forsaken people, people who are forsaken. I feel alone. Nobody cares about me. Nobody wants me. Very often, please hear me, there are the ones who say, I, I don't have any need for assembling together. If you're feeling forsaken, get to the house of God. Can I just say it that up front? Because that's the answer to being forsaken is synagoguing. Synagoguing says you can come and stand in a circle. What you thought you might have needed, you didn't need because God said, I've made an hour provision to meet you where you are. And he even goes on the next time the church shows up in Matthew 18. He says, let's see, wherever two or 3,000 are gathered together. No. And that same word, he says, wherever two or three are gathered. Want to know what the word gathered is? Synagogue. When you leave this room, find somewhere during the week with a cup of coffee. Go fill Starbucks with a moment of grace over in the corner. Lean in on each other. Pray. Whisper. Do that. Say, Father, fill Starbucks with grace. Lord, fill Cracker Barrel with grace. As I come here at 6.30 in the morning, I meet with a couple of brothers, sisters, or whatever. Wherever you want to meet. Meet wherever you want to meet and get together. Say, Lord, we've come here just two or three to sort of invite heaven in and push hell out. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now. So networking and relationship, let's keep going. He says, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as is a habit of son, but encouraging one another. Everybody say encourage. encourage. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you know the writer of the Hebrews definitely believed in the end times? I've said a thousand times in the last nine months because people have asked more, is this the end? Is this the end? Is this the end? I said, it may be. And I'm doing it just to mess with people. It may be. Well, what do I need to do if it's the end? I said, you need to get online on Facebook, social media, and you need to be finding whatever latest chart or graph someone has come up with that explains to you exactly which political party is the Antichrist, when the Lord's coming back, and what he's going to do to everybody that's in the wrong political party. He said, do you believe that? No, I don't believe that, but that's what's being done with it. The Bible says if you really believe the end's near, what should we do? Get more charts and graphs and read eschatological and apocalyptic literature. Right? Everybody say back to me, no. no. The answer is no. If I believe the end is near, what does it say to do? Encourage one another all the more. So when somebody asks me, do you believe the end is near? I do. And for that reason, let me ask you this. Are you being a grace bomb? Have you blown up on anybody today? Well, yeah, my wife. No, I'm not talking about that. Have you just blown up and created a gray space where somebody can just step in and get redemption because of the quality of your life? No, but I mean, I'm worried more about finding out a chart or a graph that's going to tell me what's going to happen in 2021. I said, I can tell you what's going to happen in 2021. The God who is and was and is to come is going to be the God who is right now, who was the God that released you from sin by his blood, and will be the God at the end of the day, this judgment that says, when you get there at the judgment seat, I want you to know that if you know the God who is, loves you right now, the God who released you, you're going to be okay when you stand in front of him. I want you to know in 2021, it's going to be the same God that's already in 2021 as is here right now. You're going to be just fine. You don't need a chart or a graph to understand that. All you need to do, <laughs> anybody getting a point? Go ahead and look at somebody, maybe your husband or wife, and maybe they'll misunderstand you, but I'm going to ask for grace. I want you to look on them. Come on, I want you to look at them and say, I'm going to blow up on you this week. Come on, I'm going to blow up on you this week. Now, I know some of you are looking at each other and say, that happened on Thursday, bro. I don't want that again. Okay. And look at them. Now, if that happened, 
If that happens, you can do like my mother-in-law talks in church to her, to Brenda and her brother, Daryl. She would talk like this in church and we all just have a blast doing it because now she does it with her great grandchildren. If we're in some public place and decorum is needed, she'll go, you got to be quiet. She talked to out of the side of the mouth as if she did out of the side of the mouth. Nobody could see it. You got to be quiet. Okay. Um, so if you're one of those that had Thursday where your blowing up was not grace but something else, you can just look straight ahead and say, I got to do over this week. I'm going to do over this week. Give me another chance. Give a brother another chance. Okay, just sort of lean in like that. Why do we need to do that? Because as we network together in praise, hallelujah, watch. Put those two words up there, if you will, and then we're going to end right here. Man, I love I love church. I love here, being here with you guys. You see that? Ekkaleo is where we get ecclesia. Do you see the same word? Kaleo? Called forth to, to, called out to call forth. We, in prayer and praise, we pull the kingdom of God into this planet like we've done in this room today. The kingdom, the kingdom, the throne. Psalm 22, God is enthroned on the praises of his people. I pray for the overruling authority of God to be manifest in every opportunity of worship because you need that. Because heaven can push back where hell is encroaching. Grace pushes back and creates redemption. But that second word, parakaleo, has the same ending. Kaleo, called forth. But para means this, called alongside to call forth. Now watch. Ekkaleo is called out to call from beyond. Parakaleo is called forth to call from within. You get that? When I gather in worship, I invite the kingdom of God in this, in corporate sense, into this place, into this room, be enthroned on our praises. May the ruling authority of your presence predominate. May grace be released, pushing back a place where your people can encounter God and its possibilities of the promises of God's word in this room today. But it doesn't end there. You see, because God never has a beyond moment that he doesn't have a within moment. That he calls us as a church. I love this stuff. Preach it everywhere I go. To call forth the kingdom from beyond but he calls me as an individual personally to call forth the kingdom from within in the name of Jesus. Pastor Buck, I am so impacted by yours and Pastor Ria's commitment to follow hard after God and even expressions of ministry that you've talked about with me and saying, Pastor, I just wonder if that was wasted motion. And I can tell you with assurance that it's not wasted motion. I can tell you with assurance that the decision that you've made at different points, one of them 13 or 14 years ago that you made was based after you sought God. And you've looked at it and said, I don't know that it brought the fruit, but I'm going to tell you, son, that you deposited grace there. And grace doesn't ever work ineffectually that you've created spaces and opportunities, the two of you did, for people to receive redemption you don't even know about and you may not know about until a lifetime when a grandchild comes walking up to you and says, because you did what I did when my grandparent, my son, my parent came to know and this happened and that happened. Now, I want to ask you something. Did you feel something when I was doing that? Can I tell you why? Did you know encouragement is one of the three notions of prophetic in 1 Corinthians 14, 3? Why? Because what I did, I just didn't tell him, hey, son, I really like you because your sense of humor is amazing and you're one of the smartest people I know. And I could say that and all that would be true. But that's not calling forth the kingdom. You see, we gather here overcoming in prayer and praise to call forth the kingdom from beyond. 
But when this is over, we get one-on-one and call forth the kingdom from within. They are encouraged, not because I said nice words or said, I like the new shirt you have or your hair looks cute. They're encouraged because I spoke something substantive that originated from another world. And here's the last thing I'm going to say. Have you ever noticed that in a worship service, when that kingdom from beyond comes in, that I somehow encouraged within? Watch this. And have you ever noticed that when I reach out and say, baby, we've been married for over 40 years, and there's never a time still, even this morning, when I hear you pray or prophesy, that it just doesn't absolutely pierce my heart, give me cold chills, and I still think we need a do-over for a next season of ministry where I'm the worship leader and you're the preacher. I just couldn't wait to see what that version would bring. Now, see, when I do that, I'm not looking to score points with my wife, did I? Okay. I'm looking to call something forth within her that didn't originate as a result of my neural neurotransmitters and synapses by the reason of dialectical exchange. But what if the words I just whispered originated, and there's teaching behind this, at the throne of God, in the heavenlies. Why is it that a word that calls you from within gives me a feeling that beyond has just come closer? Or why is it in the sanctuary when we call forth and praise that which is beyond, something stirs within me? Can I tell you this? Because there's never a beyond moment where within encouragement doesn't happen. Never, ever, ever. You can't separate them. And there's never a within moment that a beyond moment isn't somehow pulled near because God says, I'm committed to both at the same time. You can't ever separate them. Find your place of grace. Integrate giftedness. Be a grace bomb and create a moment where people can meet with God. That's the transaction point. Only if you're committed to that will you fully take your place in parting, becoming part of a corporate overcoming expression of prayer and praise that invites the kingdom of God from beyond and the possibilities beyond the boundaries of our life. We're grace bombs that blow up, but we're also grace bombs individually in each other's life, networking in relationships, small groups. We're going to have a fresh cycle of them coming up. You need to be in one. You need to know or name the two or three people in New Hope that I have a relationship with that's there to call out the kingdom from within me and summon forth the possibilities of promises from beyond. We have to have those. This is the end of our mission statement. It's who we are. I will be looking for you to find your place jointly fit and looking for any opportunity you have anywhere you go to blow up in a moment. Stand to your feet, please, if you would. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.